How good are you at following through on your commitments? If you say, I'm going to do it, how good are you at following through? I don't know about you, but I'm one of those uh, folks who will happily start any number of projects. I have so many things on the go. Just ask my wife. It infuriates her to no end. I've got so many things on the go, but I'm not very good at carrying through, at finishing the job, at finishing what I started. Surprise, surprise, we know one that is pretty good at finishing what he started, at following through. That is the Lord God himself. He makes promises and he delivers on them. He follows through every single time. But that can be both a comforting and a terrifying thing. Because if God says, look, I'm going to uh, bless you, I'm going to give you a great blessing, be kind to you, merciful to you, or I'm going to um, you know, just deliver you, save you, all these kinds of wonderful things, we go, yes, Lord, we want you to fulfill those promises. But when God says, I will bring down uh, consequences for your actions, when you rebel against me, I will bring certain uh, uh, recompense, I'll bring certain um, bad rewards, so to speak. Those are the kind of promises that we hope God will kind of forget about and not follow through on those promises. But that's not the God that we serve. He's not double-minded. He doesn't do his promises sometimes and then not other times. He always follows through. One of the things that God follows through on is revealing his wrath against unrighteousness. And we actually touched on that a little bit last week when we were hanging out in Deuteronomy 32. It's a little bit of a, a, a side topical sermon. But that truth holds true across the pages of Scripture. God reveals his wrath against unrighteousness, his anger, his righteous justice against unrighteousness. Unrighteousness being that which is wrong, that which is evil, that which doesn't measure up to God's standard. And so God has revealed his unrighteousness against many nations, sorry, God has revealed his wrath against the unrighteousness of many nations down through the course of history. And of particular relevance to us today, we're talking about some of the nations that were in the, uh, the, the region uh, where Israel lived. So in this, this region today where, where we would call it Israel, Palestine, we're talking about that geographic area. Uh, near Jordan, in the Middle East. And so back in the day, before Jesus, so before, uh, well before Jesus walked the earth in Israel, way back before King David, we're talking about a period of time when Israel was coming into the land that we now colloquially refer to as, as Israel, but it wasn't theirs yet. It wasn't known as Israel yet because the Israelites didn't live there. Well, they did live there, but in part, they lived in part of the land. But God had sent them into that land and he was revealing his wrath against the people who lived in that land. They were evil and wicked people. And I don't say that as though um, they're any different from us, but I'm just being realistic about the kinds of people who lived there. People who uh, worshipped false gods and did all kinds of abominable things. And God had revealed his wrath against them by 
dispossessing them of the land, by sending them out of the land. But God had something else that he was doing with this. God was also, as he was dispossessing those evil nations, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, you know, the whole list of the ites, as God was dispossessing those people of the land because of their wickedness, he was also blessing his own people, Israel, with the land. It was going to be an inheritance to them. It was going to be a gift to them. It was going to be a, a, a productive land where they would live as a free people, freed from Egypt. They were going to live there and worship God. He was going to set up uh, his, the, their temple in their midst. They were going to dwell there with God. They'd go up to the temple to worship him. He would bless them. They would serve him. They would be fruitful and multiply. It was going to be an amazing setup. But they needed obedience on the way. God was going to give them everything they needed. God was going to supply all of their needs. And he called them to be obedient and to kind of follow him as he gave them all of this stuff. And one of the key things that they had to do to take possession of their inheritance, to take possession of their blessing that God had given them, one of the key things he had, they had to do was to drive out the other nations, all of the wicked nations, the enemies of God, the enemies of God's people, they were to go in and drive them out. Now, you might remember the first time they tried, it didn't go so well. They came up to enter into the land, the 12 spies went up, 10 of them said, nah, too hard. And two of them said, nah, God promised this to us, let's go get it. Those two that said, yes, let's do it, was Joshua and Caleb. Those two guys, they would actually get to enter into the land. But they would have to wait because the rest of the people in their rebellion, they said, nah, we're not going up too hard. And God said, okay, you're going to wander around the desert for a generation and you're all going to die off and only your kids will get to go into the land, except for those two spies who gave the good report. And so that's what they did. They wandered around the land, the desert, for 40 years. But then they came to enter into the land and uh, Moses died, but Joshua took over from Moses and Joshua led the people into the land. Now, fun fact here, Joshua is the Hebrew version of the name Jesus. It's Yeshua. This figure who prefigured Christ went into the land, leading his people, driving the enemy back. And they had victory all over the place. And they apportioned out the land to all of the different tribes. But here's the trouble. They didn't finish the job. They did a pretty good job. They got in pretty far. They had some massive battles. They uh, secured uh, some great territory. They went around and kind of split up the land, made sure each of the tribes, the 12 tribes, got their allotted inheritance. But our story in Judges picks up when Joshua's on the way out, when his life's come to an end, when they've, they've had several decades of victory, They've had several decades to kind of live in the land. Some of them have, have parts of their inheritance, but it's not fully sorted out yet. And I've got away from my notes. So this is the book where we're picking up now. We're picking up with Joshua on his way out and the people. What's going to happen now? What's going to happen now that Joshua's not there, Moses is not there, but they're in the land, half finished with the job of possessing the land? And so the book is going to tell us. It's, 
it has uh, it, the structure of the book is broadly in three sections: the prologue, which we're looking at today, a, a center, which is probably the bit that we're most familiar with, which is a recurring uh, series of stories about each of the judges that rules in Israel, and then there's an epilogue at the end with two horrendous stories that I am not looking forward to preaching on. But that's going to be down the track. One of the things that we're going to notice as we work our way through Judges is that it's like a downward spiral. You should expect it to be a triumphant time. Joshua's led them in and they should go on from strength to strength. They've got everything that they need to to keep going. But it's going to be the opposite. There's going to be a downward spiral. It's going to get worse and worse. And the thing is, in, in all good stories, you've got good guys and you've got bad guys. But kind of counter to our modern cultural uh, trend of the way that we tell stories, we, we want to humanise the, the bad guys. We want to tell the audience <laughs> why the bad guys aren't as bad as you think. But this story of Judges kind of has it flipped. We start to see that the good guys aren't as good as you think. In fact, they're far worse than we think. We expect the, the, the bad guys to keep doing what they're doing and in a great, you know, classic story, you would expect the good guys, they'd make a few mistakes, there'd be a few losses, but then they'd learn from their, they'd learn from their mistakes and there would be a great turnaround and everything would be great in the end. But that's not what we see in Judges. We see a continual downward spiral. This book is full of short episodes, short stories, uh, and there's plenty of happy endings along the way, but the general trend is downward with more and more atrocities, more and more flawed characters, more and, uh, sorry, less and less words from God. But let's get into the prologue for today. We're not going to go through the verse by verse, there's just too much uh, ground to cover today, but I'm just going to kind of give, walk you through and give you the overview of what's covered in this first kind of chapter and a half of Judges. In this first section, we see that there is some victory and some defeat, some victory and some defeat. And we're left asking the question, well, what is the cause of these underlying issues? There's defeat. We expect victory, but why is there defeat. What's happening? Well, after the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who is to go up for us first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up and have given the land into their hands. The uh, screen's not showing up rightly, so, but that's in verses 1 to 2. So Moses uh, and, and then Joshua, they had the prophetic or priestly function of leading the people. They were effectively the voice of God to God's people for so many years. And they had got good stuff if, from God. He'd provided for them over the years. But even as they had so many victories under Joshua, there was a few stumbling points, like the sin of Achan, when uh, they took... Uh, when Jericho fell and Achan took some of the things that were meant to be devoted to destruction. They have had some slip-ups along the way, but generally speaking, it's been good stuff, good smooth sailing. 
God has been present with his people. He's been working with them and for them. And although they were now in the land under Joshua, they'd conquered great areas, but there was, there was really a lot of stuff that was still unconquered. If you go and look at a map like this and you see all the tribal divisions of Israel, you'll think, wow, look at that, isn't that great? They got all their inheritance. But when you start reading the list as we were reading before, you know that there was a whole bunch of areas that still weren't under Israelite control. Many of the tribes had their inheritance kind of marked out for them, but there was a whole bunch of other people living there that they were supposed to drive out. You can see uh, there's the, the tribes up in the north, uh, up here, there's a whole bunch of them. There's tribes on the other side of the Jordan, the Transjordan, uh, and you've got Judah being one of the biggest and most preeminent tribes down the bottom here with Simeon in the middle of Judah. There's kind of a division between north and south of Israel, which becomes much more prominent later on when there's multi different kings in the north and the south, and that divide is usually around kind of the top of the, the Dead Sea there. That's kind of the division between north and south. Ephraim in the north and eventually Samaria will be a kind of a key city. Um, but Judah in the south. What we see is that there is plenty of victories for uh, the southern tribes, in particular Judah. I'm going to read from verse 8. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem and took it. Great, victory. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. After that, Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country the Negev and the western foothills, they advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Sheshai, Iman, and Talmai. So things are going well. Things are going well. They're, they're getting victories. They've been, they've been asking God what they should do. That was a good place to start. They asked God, and then they went and did what God said. And so it was going well. They're getting victory. But then things started to grind to a halt in verse 19 to 21. The Lord was with the men of Judah. Great. They took possession of the hill country. Great. But they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. Okay, hang on a sec. It just said the Lord was with the men of Judah. And now it's saying that they can't drive the men from the plains because of their iron. Our iron chariots kind of too hard for God? It seems a bit weird. It seems a bit strange. Anyway, let's keep moving. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove it from the three sons of Anak. The Benjaminites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjaminites. Hang on a second. In verses 8 and 10, we were told that they defeated Jerusalem and they took control of Jerusalem and now you're telling me that they couldn't get rid of the people there so they won but they didn't really win this victory is not looking very victorious so that was in the south with uh, Judah and Simeon and Benjamin but then we go to the north and we see the same trend in verse 22 the house of Joseph the Joseph was uh, Ephraim and Manasseh the two tribes that came from Joseph so Ephraim and Manasseh also went up against Bethel and the Lord was with them. Great, God's with the, the, the northern tribes. But then, a few verses down in chapter 1, verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Giza. 
So the Canaanites lived in Giza among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahol. So the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labour. And there's a whole string of those, which we're not going to read, but you get the idea. There's, a, there's some victories, but a whole bunch of failure. They seem to have some kind of half victory where they, uh, they kind of subject the people to forced labour, but as we know, they were meant to drive the nations out. They, sh- they couldn't kill them, but they enslaved them. What seems to be causing this problem? Why is this happening? What is going on? Well, we're going to answer this question. We're going to answer the question of what's going on. But at first we get a little aside, a little story within the story. We get some examples of faithfulness. Examples of faithfulness. Caleb shows up in their story. Caleb is a shining example of faithfulness. Now, we don't get the full story about Caleb here, but just the fact that he shows up reminds us that it is possible for people to faithfully follow the Lord and to obey Him. Caleb was the guy who said, yes, let's trust God's promises. And in the end, God gave him a reward. He gave him his inheritance, even though he was probably over 100 years old by the time he got to take it. But Caleb got to go in and take possession. If you read the story in Joshua, even in his old age, he's like, look, I can take him on. I can go up single-handedly and, and take the land because God's promised it and I trust God's promises. So Caleb gets to take his inheritance even in his old age. He survived the faithless generation who died in the wilderness and went up and took possession with great faith. But even in his old age, you know, there's some things that he can't do And so there's a particular city that he needs to drive out the inhabitants of in his possession, in his inheritance. And so he says, look, to the guy who can go up and take out the city, look, you can have my daughter's hand in marriage. He uses this, uh, he kind of kills two birds with one stone. He's looking for a good guy who can protect and look after his daughter Uh, who can supply uh, her needs and and provide for her, protect her. Um, But he also needs somebody to take out this city. So killing two birds with one stone, he says, look, to the guy who can take out the city, you can have my daughter's hand in marriage. And so Othniel is the guy who comes through and wins the day. Othniel happens to be Axa, so that's uh, Caleb's daughter, Axa, Axa's cousin. And it was more socially acceptable to marry your cousin back in those days. It's not something weird in terms of uh, the span of history. So, Aksa is the first woman to show up in Judges and the first one of a string of women who have uh, uh, reveal great intelligence and courage in the face of the problems that are coming on them. The first problem that Aksa has is that, well... She would like some of the inheritance too. And so she counsels, I'm using the word counsels, I don't know if this is, if she was really counselling him or kind of like really getting on him, say, you should really do this. But she talks to her husband and says, look, you should ask for a, you should ask for a blessing from my father. And so 
That's what Othniel does. He does ask for a blessing and they are given some land. You know, Caleb wants to provide for his, his daughter. And so he gives her a section of land in the Negev. The Negev is down in the south in a dry and dusty area. And so she has this land, but now what's she going to do with this dry and dusty land? Well, she pleads with her father for water for the land. And the Negev being down south, down, down this region down here. One day, when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. This is in verse 14. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? And she replied, do me a special favor. Since you've given me the land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. And so Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. This water now kind of unlocks for her the land. Now she can run stock in the land because... She's got the water that she needs to supply uh, living creatures in the land. This reminds us of that kind of, the pattern of life. We see here Caleb as the faithful one who receives in his inheritance, who is rewarded for his inheritance. And we see here uh, Aksa, who does receive an inheritance, but it's a dry inheritance, so to speak. It's, it's lacking. There's, it is the wilderness. And so she has to go to her father and plead for water. Many of us will find ourselves in situations throughout our life where we are, in some sense, in a dry land, in a wilderness. In God's providence, we have been put in places where the going is tough, where, where, where fruitfulness does not come easy. And the only way that we can find blessing in the midst of the wilderness is to go to our Lord and to ask him for water, to go to our Father and ask him for a blessing. If we're to trust in the labour of our own hands, it'll all come to nothing. Unless the Lord builds the house, the labourers labour in vain. And so we ought to seek after the Lord when we find ourselves in God's providence in hard times, in the wilderness. And we find that there is great promises that God gives, in particular, in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus says, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And Jesus also says, whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. God the Father is a gracious Father who gives good gifts to those who ask Him. And so when we seek the Lord and we see our own destitution, our own lack, we can go to Him and we can receive the greatest gift of all, which is living water, which is the Holy Spirit. When we go to Him and ask of Him, He will give what we need. Coming back to the main thread of the story, we see that there is partial obedience and there is triumph withheld. We're going to get the explanation of why things have been so rough for the tribes as they've been trying to take possession of the land. In verse 1 of, of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Great! Great! 
This is what we expect to hear. The Lord says, yes, I'm, I'm coming up with you. Um, I brought you out of the land. I delivered you from that slavery in Egypt. I've led you to the land that I promised. I'm delivering on my promises. And look, I'm never going to break my covenant. I've entered into an agreement with you. I've promised to serve you in this covenant. And so that's what he's doing. He's delivering on his promises. God is always faithful. But then we get the, the follow-on in verses 2 and 3. And you, so this is the other side of the coin, I'm doing what I've been said I would do, I'm fulfilling my obligations and promises, but verse 2, you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you and their gods will become snares to you. So now it becomes plain. Now we find out what the issue is, why they've been held up as they've been going out to conquer the land. They have not been doing it the way that God wanted them to do it. They had not been obedient. They had not been faithful. And so God has brought consequences for their actions. Because of what you have done, I'm not going to make it easy. I'm not going to give you the blessing and ignore the way that you have been ignoring me. There were temporal consequences for their actions. Their lack of faithfulness is a real problem. And the same goes for us. Again, we touched on this Last week, even though we are joined in Christ, even though the wrath of God has been taken away in Jesus Christ, there are still temporal actions and even internal um, consequences for the way that we live here and now. God can be pleased or displeased with the way that we live in Jesus Christ. In Revelation, we saw in those letters to the churches that those churches that were not obedient, those churches that did not repent of their sin, Jesus threatens to take away their church, to spit them out of his mouth. There are temporal consequences. And so our lack of faithfulness is a real problem because partial faithfulness leads to a partial blessing. It might be that we uh, kind of escape the wrath of God as through fire, um, we kind of escape with our lives intact into receive eternal life, into going into the blessing of the Lord. But we are meant to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ, to have works in this life that stand the test to come. We are meant to build and serve and be obedient to Jesus in this life. But if we're not... There can be grave consequences for our sin. It is not for any... It is. Jesus says some very hard things about sin. He doesn't say, don't worry about it, it'll be okay. He doesn't say, oh, I know you're trying, just, just, just have a go, it'll be all right. Jesus says, cut off the hand that causes you to sin. Jesus says, gouge out the eye that causes you to sin. This is serious business. 
yes, when we know that he's using hyperbole, but he's using this hyperbole to prove the point. Get rid of whatever is causing you to sin. Whatever is standing in the way of your faithfulness towards God, get rid of it. Drive it away. Destroy it. And we see a pattern of that in that passage from Acts that we read before, where the people heard about the power of Jesus' name. And even those who were already believers had magic books and spell books and witchcraft stuff kind of hidden under the couch. And when they heard about the power of Christ's name, what did they do? They brought it out and they burned it. They got rid of it. They saw the power of God and they said, we don't want anything to do with this other stuff. And I pray that that would be our pattern of obedience, that we wouldn't have our old sins stuffed under the mattress, hidden away, out of sight, but that we would get rid of anything that's, that impacts our faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. Cut off whatever causes you to sin, because your partial obedience will only lead to a partial blessing. And this news really hits the Israelites hard. They knew that they had messed up. And so in verse 4 of chapter 2, when the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the, the Israelites, the people wept aloud. And they called that place Bochim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. The word Bochim means literally weepers. They called the place where they received this news weepers. And their response, they repent, they offer sacrifices to the Lord, they, they seek the Lord's grace and mercy. But in this particular instance, the ship has sailed. The ship has sailed. They lost their opportunity. I know many of us have seen great disobedience in our life, either before or even after we've, we've called ourselves Christians and called on Christ. We've done things that were evil in the sight of the Lord and we can look back and we can say, if only I could go back and change it. But the ship has sailed. Perhaps there is failed relationships and marriages, failures in our parenting. Perhaps you have done awful things, said awful things to people. Perhaps even um, you've had an abortion or you have stolen things that didn't belong to you. Perhaps you have done stupid things that lost you what could have been great, wonderful privileges in life. You've lost property or wealth. Perhaps you have had positions in the church, but then you've lost it because of your sin and disobedience. We carry around the weight of these things. We, we cannot undo them. The ship has sailed. But we keep serving the Lord. Even in the worst of our sins, God can bring good out of them. We cannot undo them, but neither should you walk around and carry them as burdens, as though you have to make atonement for them yourself, because Christ has made atonement on your behalf. He has paid for those sins. It's not for you to carry them around anymore. They're taken away in Jesus Christ. Cast them on Christ. Receive his forgiveness. 
Yes, more than the loss of what you have lost, of what could have been, but trust the Lord and serve him faithfully. It is the only way forward for you. The only other path is despair and hopelessness. So throw your burdens on Christ, cast your sins on him, and receive his forgiveness. Perhaps your evil has been great, but God's grace is greater. Perhaps God will use you like Paul, a man who went around and tried to kill Christians for a living. But God turned that on his head. I can't imagine what it would have been like for him to have to carry around that memory of what he had done to God's people. But God used him mightily to serve his church, to build his church, to bless his people. God can do the same with you. Because Christ has died to free you from your sins. You might live with some of the present consequences like Israel had to live with in this generation. But you know that God will deliver on his promises in Jesus Christ. God always comes through. Even when you have failed him, he will always come through for his people. In our last section, we see generational knowledge. Generational knowledge. We see what happens We've kind of had this set up so far in chapters 1 and, and 2 with what's going on. And now we go back for a second summary of how things are going. A, re- a restating of, of where they are and, and how things are. What does it look like? Well, in verse 7, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. And the elders... And the elders who outlived him and who had seen the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. So, those who had uh, seen God's provision in the wilderness, those who had come up into the land, those who had, were aware of how God had, had delivered them, they all served the Lord. They knew. Those who had, who, who had seen how God had provided for them, those who had seen the miraculous those who knew the salvation they had received by God's hand, they served him all of the days of their life. But, in verse 10, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, so after they've died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord or what he had done for Israel. Do you see the problem there? And a generation grew up who did not know the Lord or what he had done. And because of that, there's going to be great pain for their nation. Great pain. This is one of those stark reminders of the need to pass on our faith to the next generation. They, they don't know automatically what God has done. They don't automatically know the Lord and how to serve Him. The next generation needs to be taught. They need to have this imparted to them. And I don't just mean like five minutes on a Sunday morning. I don't, I don't just mean a couple talks here and there over the course of your child's uh, childhood. They need to be taught. They need to, be, they need to learn this. It needs to be embedded deep in them so that they will never, ever, ever forget it. Parents, are you teaching your children? 
Don't play games with their eternal souls. If we think about our own history in this country, more broadly speaking, I know many people have immigrated um, and perhaps their grandparents or great-grandparents didn't actually live in Australia, but just on the whole, in Australia, our past two generations have largely failed to impart the faith to their children. Our grandparents and great-grandparents were weary from World War I and World War II, but they forgot about the spiritual battle back on home ground. They forgot that there was a battle to be fought over souls here in our abundance and prosperity. Many made the awful mistake of leaving discipleship of their children up to the church and up to, um, and up to the schools. They did not disciple their own children. The baby boomers were largely left to float on the winds and be attracted to any kind of spiritualism that kind of looked attractive at the moment. And they passed on a similar pattern to their children. I'm speaking in generalities, of course. And so, is it any wonder that there are so many empty churches across the countryside? Why are there so many churches where there are no Christian young families? Why are there ever fewer percentages of Christians on the census? Why is the church at large so lacking in faithfulness? I think a large part is because God's people have not discipled their children. Their children have not known the Lord or what he has done for us. In Psalm 78, there is a, a great reminder of what God was doing in Israel and that they were meant to pass this news on. He established a testimony in Jacob. This is 78 verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise to tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. We know the pattern. We're going to see the pattern over and over and over again in Judges. But a way to put a stop to that pattern is by parents, by one generation faithfully transmitting this good news to the next so that they will not forget the Lord. But just don't think, I'm not a parent, I don't need to worry about this. For starters, one day you might be a parent. But secondly, this is a whole, this is a church-wide thing. Those young believers running around, they are part of your spiritual family. And regardless of whether or not you have kids, they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And they need to hear from you, to be encouraged by you, to be built up by you in the Lord so that they might carry on in the next generation so far as it is in your power encourage the next generation to serve the lord all the days of their life but you kids and we're not just talking about you i want to talk to you kids children are you taking your faith for granted it's easy to be unworried about spiritual things when you are so familiar with them, when you've grown up going to church, when it's so ordinary and normal for you to pick up God's Word and to read it, to pray. But it's like um, 
it's as if you had uh, silver spoons to eat your dinner and you had golden jewelry, stacks full of it in your drawers. It might seem very wonderful at first, but after a while, it just seems ordinary because you're always using it. You're always got it. It's so easy for you. The, th- the matters of faith might seem to you not special or precious because they've become so familiar to you. Don't take them for granted. If you ask somebody who became a believer later in life, they will tell you that you have a precious gift from being born into a Christian home and it's not a gift to be taken for granted. So children, I encourage you to learn the ways of the Lord and commit yourself to them. And you children who've been baptised in this last year, Don't think of baptism as just like a special thing you did once. It was just a rite of passage. It's a pledge from God to you that you have been received into his kingdom. It is though you are now like the Israelites who have crossed the Jordan. It's like going through the water. It's like going through a baptism for the Israelites. They crossed the Jordan to come into the promised land. You've come into God's kingdom, but it's not... Now just time for you to just kick back and relax and take it easy. God's covenant with you is secure. God's promises are secure. But you need to go forth with confidence to tackle the spiritual battles that God has for you to face. Don't become afraid and huddle in safe territory. But children, go up and claim the promised blessings that God has given you. In Ephesians, God tells us... Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness of the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. All right, let's bring it all to a close. We've covered a fair bit of ground. And some of the ideas that we've brought up here, we will keep circling back to over the coming months. But we've seen some examples of faithfulness, of obeying the Lord, doing what God has said, in particular in Caleb. We've seen Asker coming and asking her father for a blessing and receiving what she asked for. But we've seen that overwhelmingly there was partial faithfulness, and so there was a partial blessing for God's people as they went into the land. And their lack of faithfulness leads to generational decline and eventually apostasy. One, the cliche, I think, holds true, that one generation will turn to the Lord and they'll serve Him faithfully, And then the next generation takes the gospel for granted. And then the third generation forgets the gospel. With God's help, that won't be the pattern for us. God is always faithful. He will lead you and provide for his people. But don't treat the Lord with contempt. Don't go half-hearted. Don't give him second best. Honour him with your whole heart. Serve him with everything that you have, because he's worthy of it. Not because you're going to earn a place with him, it's already guaranteed with you, uh, for you in Jesus Christ, but there is great blessing in coming and giving him everything that you have. 
When you lay down your life, God gives you something much greater in return. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. Lord, we know that it is, it is hard for us and it's somewhat depressing to think about, but this is where they start and it only gets worse from here. But we know, Lord, that you are faithful and that only through you, by the power of your Spirit in Jesus Christ, can we find redemption that breaks these kinds of cycles. We pray, Lord, that you would help us Lift us up and give us faithful obedience all the days of our life. Help us, Lord, to cut off whatever is causing us to sin so that we might be able to save you faithfully, to drive out sin and wickedness that is taking up residence in our lives. Help us, Lord, to faithfully pass on the good news of your, of your salvation to the next generation. Would we bring these prayers before you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to have one more song. It's your cue, Lizza.